Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode number 58 of the Lean Blog Podcast for January 19th, 2009. Our guest today is Stephen J. Spear, a senior lecturer at MIT and a four-time winner of the Shingo Prize for Research Excellence. He is a senior fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and we are going to talk today about his new book called Chasing the Rabbit, How Market Leaders Outdistance the Competition and How Great Companies Can Catch Up and Win. So I hope you'll enjoy the conversation today. Check out his book, and as always, uh, you can find other podcast episodes at leanpodcast.org, and Dr. Spears' website is stephenjspear.com. Thanks for listening. Once again, our guest here on the Lean Blog podcast is Stephen Spear. I want to thank you for taking time to join us today. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm sure our listeners, um, I hope most of them know you from you know, going back to your, uh, your writing uh, as a PhD student at Harvard and your Harvard Business Review articles that have, uh, that have been so influential in the lean world. I was wondering if you could kind of tell us um, yeah, how you got started studying Toyota and, and kind of took initial interest in, in this whole area. Sure, I'd be happy to. So my interest in Toyota dates back um, uh, quite some time. Uh, originally, it was an interest just in, in Japan. When I was uh, in, in college, this would have been in the uh, early and mid-'80s, there was all this uh, hullabaloo about how Japan was going to take over the world. And I was really quite interested in uh, how that was happening. Uh, gradually, the discussion was not sort of Japan as a country going to overtake U.S. as a country, but uh, some very strong Japanese competitors, particularly in manufacturing, would overtake their U.S. rivals. And certainly there was ample evidence that that was going on, particularly in autos and steel and elsewhere. Uh, I... Um, as a graduate student, invested pretty heavily in learning about Japan. I went to live in Japan. And when I came back from trying to understand firsthand what was going on in Japan, uh, the lean manufacturing movement was well underway already. I, I got back to the U.S. Uh, in the mid-'90s. And the thing that was so shocking is that with uh, all the attention that had been given to Toyota in particular, all the efforts that had gone into unlocking what was going on inside of Toyota with all the transparency Toyota was showing, uh, there was no one who was really replicating Toyota's tremendous success. And in fact, for whatever advances were being made in terms of efficiency and initial quality by Toyota's competitors, it was widening the gap because it was increasing the dimensions of play. It was uh, increasing its product portfolio. It was uh, entering new markets. It was creating new brands like the Lexus. As we came to see, it invented new technologies like the hybrid drive and so forth. So mid-'90s, uh, we approached uh, Toyota. I was a doctoral student at Harvard Business School at the time. Mm-hmm. My advisor and I approached Toyota and asked them, with all the openness Toyota has provided to its competitors, what is it that people are missing? And uh, they explained that they have a very hard time explaining what they do, but they were perfectly willing to show us. In fact, uh, they were perfectly willing to teach me if I, was, if I was willing to invest the time. And so that started this uh, odyssey, which has continued, but it was very intense initially, mm-hmm. where I spent time working on the line at a Toyota competitor, Mm, the idea being to um, understand what it felt like to work in a another environment. And then uh, after that, I spent six months as part of a Toyota team trying to learn the Toyota production system by teaching it and, and developing a, a first-year supplier in, in Kentucky. 
That, that's that's really interesting. They would have you go work at another factory. Was that part of their kind of typical training, or was that something they they created as a learning opportunity for you? The um, the idea of working in another factory at the time seemed idiosyncratic. But what I've come to appreciate about Toyota is that their general approach to how they design work is uh, to create the opportunity to be surprised. And so, hmm. in my own particular case. The idea was that if I went into a Toyota plant without a good grounding in what other people were doing, I would see things, but I wouldn't see things in terms of being the same or different from what was done elsewhere. I would just see things as things were done. So for me, in particular, I was able to start seeing some differences in terms of design of work, problem-solving, problem identification, relationship between first and second-level supervisors and frontline employees and that sort of thing. More generally, though, what I came to appreciate about Toyota is that this idea of creating the opportunity to be surprised is representative of how they approach most everything they do. And, and it, it gets to a basic problem which affects not only Toyota and their competitors in the auto industry, uh, but uh, companies and organizations more generally. And the problem is that when they set out to do work, and, and typically does work has some design component, whether it's designing products or designing services or designing the processes by which those products and, ser- and services are brought to bear. There's a tremendous amount of uncertainty uh, because most of the time when you start something new, you don't have the information or the wisdom to arrive at perfect answers. Mm-hmm. And so what Toyota had realized is that if you create the opportunity to be surprised uh, by uh, making very, very clear what you're doing and why you're doing it, and very clear uh, when something has happened which is contrary to your expectations, you'll very quickly hone in on what it is you don't know. And if you hone in on very quickly on what you don't know, then you can uh, recognize the things you don't understand and then invest your efforts and your resources on, in terms of converting ignorance into knowledge. Hmm. The argument I've made over uh, hmm. the articles uh, I've written in Harvard Business Review and elsewhere, and, and certainly in the, the book I've just published called Chasing the Rabbit, the argument I make is that great companies like Toyota win because they outrace their competition. And th- their ability to outrace their competition, the source of their uh, inherent velocity, is that they are identifying things they don't know, seizing those opportunities, converting ignorance to, into knowledge, and putting that knowledge to good use at rates much, much faster with durations much longer over breadths much wider mm-hmm. than anyone else in their sector. And, and the argument I make in the book and, and the examples I give are not just from Toyota, but many, many other situations. Uh, Alcoa, which made huge advances in workplace safety. Uh, many hospitals, which have eliminated a whole number of really uh, prevalent problems that cause great pain and suffering at other hospitals. Uh, there's a, a chapter devoted to the um, Navy's uh, discovery of uh, how to do nuclear propulsion uh, in, in a perfectly safe fashion. The, 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 um, the underlying theme of all these examples is that these organizations, which have been really great competitors over uh, not only years but decades, are great competitors precisely because they create the opportunity to be surprised. And when they're surprised, they're very, very quickly to convert use those surprises as signals and triggers to get better at what they do. Mm-hmm. 
And so you, you mentioned the book, and, and that's what we're here to talk about, um, Chasing the Rabbit. And, and the subtitle is How Market Leaders Outdistance the Competition and How Great Companies uh, Can Catch Up and Win. Um, so I assume by, by the rabbit you mean companies like Toyota. Um, do, do you find, uh, I assume, you know, I know the book isn't strictly about Toyota. You're talking about other high-performing companies. Um, what, what are some of the parallels? Do, do you find that all companies that kind of outperform their industry share some of those common themes about how work is designed and how problems are solved, things like that, or, or how else do you characterize it? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. So the the notion of uh, chasing the rabbit and, and the reason for the title is that there are a whole host of industries where competition uh, should be incredibly intense. Um, whatever the organization, whatever the firm, they can't do the classic uh, positioning and differentiation that is encouraged of managers in a typical MBA program. Uh, they have many competitors. Uh, they can't lock up their customers with a monopoly. They can't lock up their suppliers, uh, make their suppliers dependent on them as their sole customer. Uh, they can't erect barriers to entry. They're subject to the same uh, regulations and macroeconomic forces as everyone else. And when you describe a situation like that in which it's an incredibly level playing field, one would expect a very, very ferocious competition uh, where it's very hard to achieve and, achieve and sustain profitability where it's very hard to achieve and sustain leadership. And it turns out for uh, most companies in that kind of situation, uh, what one would expect comes true. It's brutal. Mm -hmm. And we see this with the, uh, the major automakers. Sure. Uh, who, even before the current economic downturn, uh, many, if not most of them, were struggling to, to keep up. Uh, we see this in commercial aviation. I, I heard recently someone say that I think it was since deregulation. Not a single major U.S. carrier has made money on a cumulative basis. Right. And there are many other examples where you have this situation of intense competition. Then across, uh, as you start looking at these industries, what you discover is that uh, one after another have these anomalies. So in the auto industry, everyone's struggling, and even Toyota's struggling now, but Toyota is grossly outperforming its competitors. And again, it was doing so uh, before the economic downturn and seems to be doing so now. In commercial aviation, everyone struggles, and some once-heralded companies such as uh, Pan Am and TWA have gone out of business. Continental has been through bankruptcy twice. And you have Southwest, which has um, had 35-plus uh, years of uh, profitable operations. Yep. And there are some examples in less well-known industries, uh, microchip manufacturing, you know, healthcare, financial services, uh, so on and so on and so on. The common theme uh, across all these uh, leaders is they approach the management of their work in a decidedly different way when compared to their competitors, but in a decidedly similar way when compared to each other. The, again, it gets back to this basic issue that uh, all these organizations, both the uh, high-performing frontrunners and the rest, are responsible for the design and the operation of incredibly complex systems that must bring to bear uh, the, the uh, contribution of many, many different people occupying many, many different functions and specialties. And most people, when they, when they are, find themselves faced with that responsibility, do their absolute best. It's not like they're slackers. Right. But when they um, do their best, inevitably they get something wrong. And then at that point, that's the real decision point. Uh, what ends up happening in many organizations is that they 
get to the point that they've created a system, it's imperfect, and at that point they just sort of muddle on through whatever the imperfections are. Mm -hmm. The exceptional organizations get to those imperfections, and with their tremendous commitment to seeing problems as they occur, they uh, run into trouble, but they run into trouble earlier rather than late when the trouble is very small rather than large. And rather than just muddle on through, they're very, very quick to see the problem and swarm it to contain it. But then the second thing is when they see and swarm the problem, they solve it. Uh, again, this, this is the, the problem is the, the reflection of the indication of the part of the work that they designed about which they were ignorant. And so they're very, very quick to convert what they don't understand into something they do understand. So that becomes a second distinctive behavior. Uh, the third distinctive behavior then is that they recognize that what they've learned is one of the few sources of competitive advantage they have. Again, the companies I've described are, um, as advanced as their product and processes may be, they're essentially in commodity businesses. Uh, the stuff that goes into their business is uh, widely accessible. The things they sell have uh, many competitors. So uh, it's, uh, again, you know, one wouldn't necessarily think of uh, microchips, automobiles, airplanes, and that sort of thing as uh, commodities, but in many regards they are. So what these folks recognize is that the only thing they have which others don't have is the knowledge they've created on how to conduct their business. So one characteristic behavior is they're very quick to see and swarm problems. The second is that they're very quick to solve problems in a disciplined way that builds knowledge. The third is when they create new knowledge locally, they're very determined and disciplined about making sure that that knowledge has a systemic, broad, wide application throughout the organization. Then the fourth really distinctive uh, behavior within these organizations is that of leadership. In many organizations, we see leaders responsible for establishing priorities, which they have to because they have a perspective other people lack. They um, allocate resources and assign responsibility. Again, that's something they have to do because others lack the authority. But in these high, um, high what I call high-velocity organizations, these rabbits who everyone are everyone else is chasing uh, as they invent and improve and innovate. Uh, the leaders in, in these very high-velocity organizations, these rabbit organizations, have a, an extraordinarily strong commitment to developing the capabilities of everyone else to design work so that problems are evident, to solve problems when they're seen, and then to share what they've learned. And uh, as, as I started talking about this distinction in leadership, one of the uh, phrases that's uh, been kind of helpful is to think in terms of the typical leadership model is uh, a transactional model where you make decisions and choices, who to hire, who to fire, what market to enter or exit, what to buy and what to sell. And in these high-velocity organizations, these rabbit organizations, leadership is very developmental and focused on discovery. And so when you talk about you know, those, those thought processes and management systems, it seems like those would be things that would be very difficult, if not impossible, to, to, to gleam off of the surface of a 90-minute you know, tour through a Toyota facility. Is that, is that part of the challenge? When, you know, we talk about companies trying to catch up. You know, GM and Ford and Chrysler have, have all, in, in one way or another, maybe just at the factory floor level, been trying to emulate Toyota's practices for 15, 20 years now. And, and they're struggling and you know, kind of maybe run counter to the you know, the optimistic subtitle of your of your book, where you say companies can catch up uh, to rabbits. Um, why, why is it so hard 
for, for companies to, to figure out what, you know, the, the, the high velocity rabbit or, you know, the, the toy of, of their industry is doing? Why, why is it so hard for companies to, to, to really emulate the real secret of those companies' success? Your question hits upon at least part of the obstacle. What's happened is a lot of people have gone into organizations like Toyota and some of the others that I mentioned in the book, and they quickly get caught up with the shop floor manifestations of a high-velocity approach to management. So they'll go in and they'll see uh, continuous flow, poll systems, value stream maps, uh, standard work, floor rest, production cells, and that kind of thing. And what they're really seeing at that point is not the management system per se, but the consequence of applying that management system to production. And, and if you think in terms of um, horizontal and vertical relationships, so horizontal being the flows of material from receiving through shipping, uh, that's what they see, how, that, how those flows and how that work is managed. But what they're failing to see is the vertical relationships which connect the most senior leaders uh, to the frontline workers. Those behaviors, one, I think are a lot harder to see because they take some time. So that, that's one obstacle, and you mentioned that. You're not going to see the role of Gary Convis at Toyota Georgetown or Norm Buffano at Toyota Indiana or Admiral Rickover, who um, ran uh, successfully for 60 years the uh, Navy's nuclear propulsion program, or Paul O'Neill, who was CEO at Alcoa. You're not, you're not going to see the characteristic behavior in 90 minutes, nor are you going to see in 90 minutes the characteristic behavior that they're trying to encourage and inspire within their organization. So that's one thing. The second is um, I once had a, a professor who said the cliche is that uh, seeing is believing, that, that the facts influence our perception of reality. And he said, in, in fact, what really is the case is that believing is seeing, that the mindsets we bring into a situation so shape our perception of reality that it takes overwhelming evidence uh, to convince us that we need an alternative way of uh, perceiving what's going on around us. So another part is, is that if you walk into one of these um, uh, organizations, and even if you have a huge amount of time, if your mindset is still wrapped around the idea that a leader is someone who makes the tough calls, makes the hard decisions, um, who tells people what to do, you're going to miss a lot of this other stuff and think that it's just the the, the window dressing around what leaders fundamentally do. So that becomes a second obstacle, is that unless you go in uh, very, very receptive uh, to the subtle differences, the important differences, but the subtle nuanced differences in terms of what the leaders are doing, you're going to miss them. Then there's a third obstacle, is that even if you have the time and even if you perceive the differences, uh, these things take a lot of practice. And as I, as I lay out in Chasing the Rabbit, I make the argument that the behaviors that distinguish Toyota from its competitors, Southwest from its, and the other high-velocity organizations I identify from their competitors, the behaviors are easy to describe. You know, in terms of a set of rules, uh, they're fairly short, and uh, it probably wouldn't take much effort to get all the main points of chasing the rabbit onto a single page, if not even a, a large index card. But then it becomes the question of do you have the discipline to practice them, and not only practice them, but practice them with the other people you, uh, with whom you work. And that, that's, a, that's a third obstacle, too. Um, you know, we could sit down and tell someone what the, uh, what the great plays are in football and even assemble great players, but unless we have the discipline as a team 
to uh, practice those plays, uh, both within our specialties, linemen and the uh, backfield quarterback, receivers, defensive line, uh, you know, ends, tackles, and that whole thing. If, if we're not willing to do it um, in small groups and then practice it as a cohesive unit, uh, then we're not going to be very good. So there are at least three levels at which uh, any attempt to imitate the leaders can fail. Now, the, the optimistic part of the uh, book title is that there is evidence that there are companies and organizations which have accelerated themselves. So, for example, in Chapter 5 of the book, I talk about engine design at Pratt & Whitney where they did a great job of accelerating their ability to make discoveries that had competitive uh, and commercial impact. Uh, there's another example of a, a company that was a great idea uh, around Internet advertising, and they did a, a marvelous job of accelerating uh, their ability to discover their way to greatness. Uh, it's a company called a, originally Avenue 8, later re, rechristened as A Quantive. Uh, chapter 11 of the book describes uh, efforts at a number of different hospitals to become high velocity and discover how to deliver great care with less effort and less cost, uh, not only improving the quality of care but diminishing the risk both to uh, patients and staff. And, and, and that's such a different mindset from a hospital saying, oh, we're going to go implement a bunch of lean tools within, within healthcare, that this is... It's, yeah, it seems like the opportunity is in, in adopting that mindset and that management practice. And maybe in a future discussion, we, we can delve a little more specifically into healthcare. But you know, I guess maybe a final question, and this might be a bit unfair. I'm asking you to put somebody up on a pedestal maybe. But is there a rabbit uh, with, within healthcare or a collection of near rabbits that, that you could point to? It's a very good question, and as someone who's both a payer, a patient, and a family member of patients, yeah. I desperately wish there were uh, even a single hospital or uh, delivery system where you can point and say they have figured it out. What I can be optimistic about is that there are a number of examples of organizations that are trying to figure it out. I've mentioned uh, several times in my writing, both in Harvard Business Review and in the book, uh, Virginia Mason Medical Center in Seattle. And what sets them, what makes them so noteworthy is the tremendous commitment Gary Kaplan, the CEO of the hospital, has made towards not only bringing this uh, mode of discovery into his organization, but actually modeling it and championing it himself. Uh, that's one example. There's a whole host of other examples um, associated with the Institute of Healthcare Improvement and the 100,000 Lives campaign the IHI has championed over the last number of years. Uh, I'm here in, in, in Boston, and one local example, which is very, very encouraging, is at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. The uh, fellow who's um, uh, CEO of the hospital there, a fellow named Paul Levy, uh, comes to healthcare, not from healthcare, but from uh, running the uh, Massachusetts Water Resources Authority. Uh, needless to say, a very, very process-oriented agency and one in which uh, quality and, uh, and operational excellence are really paramount. You, you can't afford to have bad water. You can't afford to have uh, shutoffs in water delivery and that sort of thing. At Beth Israel Deacons, what he's done is started with the mindset that things do go wrong in delivering uh, medical care to patients. And the only way to make sure that things go right is to be absolutely insistent that when things do go wrong, 
were well aware of it. And he's done a whole uh, number of different things to encourage tremendous transparency within the organization. Uh, for Beth Israel, this is still in the nascent stages, and um, time will tell if their approach of managing work to see problems and when problems are seen swarming them, whether that can be conveyed into uh, problems which get solved, and when they get solved, it, it gets conveyed into much deeper organizational-wide understanding of how to deliver care with uh, fewer defects, higher quality, less cost, and less effort. There are some encouraging signs, but um, and there may be some Toyota-like examples out there about which I'm unaware, but in terms of what I am aware, uh, there's a uh, budding understanding, and one can only hope that it develops further. I think we can all agree on that. So, um, Well, for today, I want to thank you for taking some time out and, and, and talking to us and uh, introducing uh, the, the new book, Chasing the Rabbit, which is from McGraw-Hill and I'm sure available at, at quite a few bookstores and, of course, uh, you know, all the online uh, sources of books. It's, it's a really fascinating read. And maybe as a final thought, Steve, if um, the people listening are interested uh, in, in having you either come speak to their organization or, or do some sort of work with them, how might they go about reaching you? Oh, I appreciate the question. So uh, probably the easiest is um, I have a website, which is uh, uh, stephenjspear.com, and uh, I can be reached by email at chasing uh, at stephenjspear.com. And, and just uh, one closing thought, I, I do appreciate the chance to uh, speak with you today and through you to your audience. One of the things that's been very exciting about the work I've undertaken over the last uh, you know, 15, 20 years is that the basic question is, from a manager's perspective, is how do you do things which are incredibly valuable but do things create uh, in, in, incredible value through the hard work of other people? And the, the lessons that come out of this research uh, from the great examples like Toyota and Alcoa and the others um, are really quite inspiring because what they say is that an individual going into work on a given day can be far more successful at creating uh, something valuable for someone else and that managers going into work every day can be increasingly successful at unleashing the potential of their fellow human beings. Yeah, and, and I think that would be great if we had uh, if we had more of that. So hopefully people will be uh, in, in inspired by the, the book and the stories that you have in there to... Uh take some steps forward. So um, again, thanks for, for joining us and uh, being here on the podcast. Oh, you're quite welcome. And if there's another opportunity, I'd certainly welcome it. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.